Jimmy Stewart becomes a Western star, talks with horses, finds true love, and makes a million dollars. From 1950, it's Winchester 73. I'm Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. Winchester 73 changed the course of Jimmy Stewart's career. His first serious Western, the film demonstrated that Jim was a versatile actor who could expertly bring dark, complicated characters to life on screen. Characters that were completely different from the Jimmy Stewart persona pre-war audiences knew and loved. And with Winchester director Anthony Mann, Jim redefined the mold of the modern Western hero. Winchester 73 also made Jimmy Stewart an extremely wealthy man. By accepting a percentage of the film's profits instead of a large upfront payment, Jimmy made $1 million in 1950 alone. But to Jim, more important than the fame, money, and artistic respect he enjoyed at this stage of his career was the entrance of Gloria Hattrick McLean into his life the woman who became the one and only Mrs. Jimmy Stewart. In a town ripe with divorce and infidelity, the amazing love story of Jim and Gloria is an inspiration. The Stewart marriage would be one of the few happy and forever marriages in Hollywood. We'll go through the plot of the film, meet the spunky Gloria Hattrick McLean, and detail Jim's and Gloria's courtship before going behind the scenes of this revolutionary western. The year is 1876. Lynn McAdam, Jimmy Stewart, and high spade Frankie Wilson, Millard Mitchell, arrive in Dodge City, where the skilled Lynn enters a shooting contest. The prize for the contest winner is a coveted Winchester 1873 rifle. Lynn will have to wait for the actual contest to do any shooting, however, as Sheriff Wyatt Earp, Will Gear, immediately confiscates the guns of all who arrive in Dodge City. This proves frustrating for Lynn when, on entering a bar before the contest, he spots the old rival he's been tracking, Dutch Henry Brown, Stephen McNally. The two men attempt to draw guns on each other by instinct, only to remember that Wyatt Earp has their guns. So, both men live to challenge each other in the contest for the Winchester. During the shooting contest, it's a close call between Lynn and Dutch for the rifle, but Lynn proves the victor after shooting through the center of a stamp on a gold coin mid-toss. Dutch doesn't play fair, however, and ambushes Lynn in his hotel room. Dutch and his men steal the Winchester from Lynn and bolt out of town. They head for Rikers, a hotel far enough away from Dodge City for them to trade for more guns, and plan their upcoming robbery of a bank in Tuscosa, Texas. But at Rikers... Dutch loses the Winchester to traitor Joe Lamont, John McIntyre. Although we still don't know why Lynn originally sought revenge on Dutch, when Dutch steals the Winchester, it gives Lynn more motivation to find him. Lynn and High Spade are hot on Dutch's trail, but barely miss him when they arrive at Rikers. 
Lynn and High Spade continue after Dutch, but are soon thwarted by a Native American tribe led by young bull, Rock Hudson. Yes, you heard that right, Rock Hudson. Young Bull scalped Joe Lamont for the Winchester and is now in possession of the rifle. Lynn and High Spade team up with a cavalry sergeant, J.C. Flippin, and his men in battle against Young Bull and his men. Before the battle, Lynn realizes that Lola Manners, Shelley Winters, a woman he briefly met in Dodge City, and her cowardly fiancé, Steve Miller, Charles Drake, are also among those in the cavalry camp. A few sparks fly as Lola realizes that Lynn has the courage her fiancé lacks. Lynn and the cavalry defeat young Bull and his men, and a cavalry soldier, Tony Curtis, retrieves Lynn's Winchester from the battlefield. But as Lynn and High Spade have already set out after Dutch Brown again, the cavalry gifts the Winchester to Steve and Lola, who are on their way to their new home. When Lola and Steve arrive at their new home, Steve's old outlaw acquaintance, Waco Johnny Dean, Dan Durier, is using their place as protection during a shootout with the local law enforcement. Waco wants Steve's Winchester and kills him for it. Waco then leaves the shootout with the Winchester and Lola as protection against enemy fire. Waco and the unwilling Lola arrive in Tuscosa and meet up with Dutch. Lola sees a picture of Dutch and Lynn at the hideout and realizes that the two men are somehow connected. Dutch sees that Waco now has the Winchester and threatens to kill him for it. Waco hands over the rifle, but intends to get it back after the bank robbery. But before he can, Waco runs into Lynn and High Spade at a bar, where Waco is acting as a lookout during the heist. Lola sees Lynn and apprises him of the situation. When Lynn asks Waco to take him to Dutch, Waco tries to shoot him. But Lynn is the faster draw and kills Waco. Lynn then sees Dutch and his men leaving the bank and chases after him. The two men end up in a shootout on top of a mountain. We learn that Dutch and Lynn are brothers and that Dutch killed their father, shooting him in the back when he refused to shelter Dutch after a robbery. Lynn has chased Dutch with intent to kill ever since. After a harrowing series of close calls and ricocheting bullets, Lynn is the victorious brother. He shoots Dutch, who falls off the mountain to his death. Lynn, finally reunited with his Winchester, returns to Tuscosa, where High Spade and Lola anxiously await his return. The three look down at the rifle and out to the future. And that's the end of the film. When Jimmy Stewart returned to the screen in 1946, after four years of military service, his comeback film, It's a Wonderful Life, wasn't the successful career booster he'd hoped for. In fact, it wasn't until 1949's The Stratton Story that Jim had his first bona fide post-war hit. Based on the life of Chicago White Sox pitcher Monty Stratton, Jimmy almost didn't get the role which Louis B. Mayer, still underrating Jim's talents, intended for Van Johnson. But it was Jim's reputation for tenacious character study that eventually got him the part. As Van Johnson remembered, quote, I got on really well with Monty Stratton, and I think he liked me, but I just couldn't pitch the ball in a way that pleased him. He said to me he hoped I wouldn't be offended, but he was going to ask Mr. Mayer if Jimmy Stewart could play the part. 
I wasn't offended because I didn't want to look ridiculous on screen, but I said, how do you know Jimmy Stewart can pitch a ball? And he said, I don't, but Jim will practice time and again until he can, unquote. What a compliment to Jimmy, and a warranted one at that. Jim pitched the ball so convincingly in the film that the Stratton story became MGM's highest-earning film of the year, bringing in over $4 million at the box office. Jim's performance also earned him Photoplay Magazine's gold medal for Most Popular Male Performer of 1949. It was this diligence in mastering every last detail of a role that would soon bring Jimmy's gunslinging Lynn McAdam to life in Winchester 73. But first, Jimmy met and married the woman who would be the one and only Mrs. James Stewart. Gloria Hattrick McLean was born on March 10, 1918 in Larchmont, New York. Gloria's was a privileged upbringing, and her father Edgar was the general manager of Hearst Metrotone News. The beautiful, slender, green-eyed Gloria attended the Finch School in New York and worked as a model, dance instructor, and fashion designer before marrying Edward Beale McLean Jr. in 1943. With McLean, the son of Washington Post owner Edward Beale McLean Sr. and Evelyn Walsh McLean, the last private owner of the Hope Diamond, Gloria had two sons, Ronald and Michael. It wasn't a happy marriage, due in large part to McLean's infidelities, of which Gloria was well aware. When Edward McLean asked Gloria for a divorce so he could marry his mistress, who incidentally was a Vanderbilt, the independent-minded and witty Gloria decided to have a little fun with her philandering husband. As the gutsy Gloria later recalled, quote, I didn't want to make things too easy for him when he told me he was leaving. I was doing a crossword, and he was trying to tell me his intentions. I would say, five down, philanderer. Seven letters, the first letter is B, and the last letter is D. Hmm, now what could that be? Finally, he said, look, I'm going to divorce you. And I said, just as long as you're the one who goes to Reno. And as long as I got a good settlement so I could raise my two boys, he was free to go. And I was free too. Unquote. Sounds like a scene out of a Katherine Hepburn movie, doesn't it? Gloria Hattrick certainly had spunk. So at age 31 in 1948, Gloria was a young, beautiful divorcee with two small boys to raise. It was a unique situation for the 1940s. As Gloria remembered, quote, It wasn't easy being a single mother with two boys aged two and three. Most single mothers didn't go out. I did. I wasn't going to miss out on a life, but I also made sure that my boys were okay. If I went to dinner at a restaurant, they came too. I took them to some parties and everyone would dote on them." Unquote. Now that's an awesome mom. I love that Gloria didn't sacrifice her time with her children or her own well-being and social life. Gloria says that she and Jim actually first met at a party hosted by actor Keenan Wynn, but Jim and his buddies were a little worse for wear when they crashed the party at Wynn's house. As a result, Jim would have absolutely no recollection of the first time he officially met his future wife. Gloria later humorously related that, quote, I was somewhat underwhelmed by what I saw that day. 
A few weeks later, I was having lunch at Romanoff's restaurant with my two sons and in walked Jim with some friends, and he never even acknowledged me, which isn't surprising since he couldn't remember meeting me the first time because he was so drunk. Unquote. Hard to imagine Jimmy Stewart drunk, but there it is. It was their third meeting in the summer of 1948 at a party hosted by Gary and Rocky Cooper that Jim and Gloria finally made lasting, positive impressions on each other. Stewart biographers like to haggle over whether the party occurred at the Cooper's home or a restaurant, and whether Ronald Reagan was in attendance or not. Because those are super crucial facts. In my book, the important bit is that Jim and Gloria, thanks to their good friends Gary and Rocky Cooper, finally had a chance to sit down together and start to fall in love. The Coopers undoubtedly deserve full credit for bringing Jim and Gloria together for what would be one of the few lasting and truly successful marriages in Hollywood. As Gloria remembered of starting to fall for Jim at the Cooper party, quote, What took me by surprise was how shy he was. He hardly said a thing. And that's what first attracted me to him. After dinner, Leland Hayward, Jim's friend and sometime agent, insisted that Jim and I go to Ciro's with him for a little dancing. Jim was a very good dancer, and he seemed more at ease dancing than he was talking. I knew he was getting interested in me when Leland tried to cut in, and Jim waved him off." Unquote. A golfing date was set for the next day, and many more followed. It was Gloria who helped speed the courtship along when she reminded the slow-moving Jim that, quote, I eat too, you know, unquote. Things escalated from there, and Jimmy's good friend Burgess Meredith says he knew immediately that Gloria was special. Different from the other girls Jim had dated over the years, quote, He was always talking about her, how great at golf she was, what a great dancer she was, what great kids she had, and how this huge dog she had always jumped on him with glee when he arrived at her house, unquote. Gloria was equally effusive in her praise for Jim. He was a good man, and she knew it. Quote, A single mother with two children doesn't get the best of the catch usually, but I did. I got Jim. When he found out I had children, he wanted to meet them, and he was great with them right from the start. Unquote. Jim reportedly spent his birthday that year nervously rehearsing his proposal to Gloria, as Jimmy later remembered, quote, I thought to myself, Jim, you might never find a better one than this girl. And I was right. So I decided I'd better ask her to marry me. Unquote. He did, and Gloria said yes. The wedding took place August 9th, 1949, at the Brentwood Presbyterian Church. Jim and Gloria began their life together honeymooning in Hawaii and remained happily married for the next 45 years. Around the time of his marriage to Gloria, Jim's agent, Lou Wasserman, approached him with a revolutionary picture deal. Every single source I can find differs on the key points of the deal Wasserman brokered for Jim, but here's what we know for sure. Lou Wasserman came to an agreement with William Getz, head of Universal Studios, for Jimmy to star in Harvey a film Jim was anxious to make, and one other film of Getz's choosing. And rather than a large upfront payment for each film, Jim would receive a percentage, 
most sources say 50% of each film's profits. The risks Jim took by accepting the deal were, of course, that he might not like the second film project Gets Chose, and that both films would bomb at the box office. But Jim would have accepted just about any deal to star in the film version of Harvey after his success taking over the role for Frank Fay in the Broadway show. So, these were risks he was willing to take. That second film Gets Chose for Jimmy to star in was Winchester 73. Though Winchester was clearly the film Jim had to make in order to star in the film he wanted to make, Jimmy himself perfectly and succinctly summed up how things ultimately turned out. Quote, Winchester 73 was a desperation move that proved a lifesaver. Unquote. Filming of Winchester 73 began in February of 1950. In addition to the percentage deal, Lou Wasserman negotiated for Jim an enviable amount of control over the production. Jimmy not only enjoyed soul star billing on Winchester, he also had casting approval of his co-stars and choice of director. And his choice of Anthony Mann to direct proved wiser than Jim could have imagined at the time. Winchester 73 marked the start of the successful and prolific Stuart Mann partnership. Over the next five years, the two men made eight films together, five of which were westerns. Mann, with his film noir background, tapped into Jimmy Stewart's dark side in a way no previous director, with the exception of Frank Capra in the darker moments of It's a Wonderful Life, had ever done before. In Winchester 73, Jim still has elements of his lovable, nice guy goodness from his earlier roles, but his Lynn McAdam is a man on a mission of revenge, seeking to kill the brother who murdered their father, and willing to do just about anything to accomplish the task. Jim's character is not motivated by altruism, but anger. So very not Jimmy Stewart. Or at least not the Jimmy Stewart most fans thought they knew from his pre-war films. But Jim was ready for the challenge, and the opportunity, to play such a different character. As Jimmy later said, quote, I liked the script of Winchester 73 straight away. I had a tough character to play for once. I liked the idea of a man who is driven. It gives the character shades of light and dark." Unquote. And despite preconceived notions of the Jimmy Stewart film persona, he is completely believable in the role. Jim brings an underlying rage to Lynn McAdam. He's a man on edge who's liable to lose his cool at any moment. Jimmy's years as a bomber pilot during the war, in his own words, matured him, and undoubtedly lent to his great ability to portray darker emotions in Winchester 73. Coupled with the skillful direction of Anthony Mann, Jimmy's intriguing character, with shades of light and dark, was expertly magnified and brought to life on screen in gritty realism. As producer Aaron Rosenberg said of the magic of the Stewart-Mann partnership, quote, Anthony Mann brought something out in Jimmy Stewart that hadn't really been seen before. It was an almost manic rage that would suddenly explode. There was an underlying toughness that hadn't been seen much before. Stewart's character would just go into a violent rage, which was a fresh approach, not just for Stewart, but also for the Western. Here was a hero with flaws. 
Tony Mann said he liked the idea of making the audience wonder if there was something that was latently psychotic about the Stewart character. Unquote. This new, latently psychotic Stewart character was a shock to preview audiences of Winchester 73, who initially balked at the idea of nice guy Jimmy Stewart in a serious western. But as screenwriter Borden Chase recalled, quote, When the picture was given a sneak preview, there had been some titters in the audience at seeing Stewart's name in the opening titles of a western. But once he smashed Dan Duryea in the bar, there was no more snickering. Unquote. That's awesome. I love that Jimmy took a chance, went all in on this new type of character, and was so rewarded for his efforts. In addition to the emotional depth Jim brought to Winchester 73, his dedication to mastering the physical aspects of the role further made his portrayal of Lynn McAdam convincing and completely real for audiences. Much as he had learned to expertly pitch a baseball for the Stratton story, Jimmy now turned his attentions to becoming an expert marksman, or appearing to be one anyway. As Jim put it, quote, It's always important to me to get the technical things right. If you play a character who's an expert with a rifle, you better at least look like you're an expert. Unquote. So Jimmy practiced firing a rifle for hours every day until his knuckles were sore. For weeks, he took lessons from Herb Parsons, an expert from the Winchester Arms Company, who also did Jimmy's trick shots in the film. Jim even observed how Parsons held the gun, so that by the time of filming, Jim held the rifle naturally. So naturally, in fact, that the New York Herald Tribune wrote that it looked, quote, as if he'd been doing nothing else but westerns throughout his illustrious career, unquote. Another reason Jim looked like such a natural in the role was due to his realistic wardrobe, and one article in particular, his hat. As producer Aaron Rosenberg said, quote, The most important part of Jimmy's wardrobe in the film was the hat. Many people think a cowboy hat is a cowboy hat, but there are many shapes and sizes, and a hat can say a lot about the personality of the person wearing it, unquote. It reportedly took Jimmy and Tony Mann two months to decide on the hat Jimmy eventually wore in the film. But the thought behind the decision was worth it. Jim, in his own words, viewed the hat as a kind of good luck piece and wore it in all of his westerns after. Jim and John Ford would even butt heads over the hat a decade later when Ford directed Jimmy in Two Road Together in 1961. Jim would insist on wearing his Winchester 73 hat, and Ford would grudgingly allow him to, but not before teasing Jim that if they ever made another picture together, he'd have to have hat approval written into his contract. And the curmudgeonly Ford was only half kidding. Another first on Winchester 73 that stuck with Jimmy Stewart throughout the westerns he made over the next two decades was his horse. Jim would later swear that from the group of horses he had to choose from, he felt an immediate connection with Pie, the horse he decided on for the film. Jim sensed an intelligence, even a personality in Pie. Quote, I just fell in love with the horse. He would do things that I just never seen in a horse. We were friends. I swear he knew what he was doing. 
He listened to everything I said to him, too. I could tell by the way his ears moved. It's such a tremendous advantage in Westerns if you can get the feeling that the horse and you are partners. Unquote. Jim and Pi definitely project a sense of partnership in Winchester 73, and continue to do so in all Jimmy's Westerns until 1970's The Cheyenne Social Club, when Pi was too old for location filming and Jim had to use a double horse. But thanks to Henry Fonda, who painted a watercolor portrait of Pi for his best bud, Jim's fond memories of his beloved horse were never far from his mind, even after Pi's passing. To an interviewer in the 1980s, Shelley Winters comically said of her role in Winchester 73 that, quote, I didn't know what the hell I was doing in that picture. I always figured that there were all these guys running around trying to get their hands on this rifle who should have been trying to get their hands on me. That's what the film should have been about as far as I was concerned. But that doesn't make for a good western, I guess. In the end, nobody remembered me being in it. Except you. Unquote. While Shelley may have felt her role in Winchester 73 was forgettable, a point on which I disagree, Shelley does a fantastic job bringing an element of realistic romance to the film. She adored working with Jimmy Stewart. And much of that was thanks to Jim's gentlemanly treatment of Shelley. Both Jim and Shelley had, as Shelley puts it, good left sides. In other words, Jim and Shelley each believed their left profile was more attractive than their right, and as such, preferred to have the left side of their face on camera. For any other leading man, this would have presented a problem, but not for Jimmy Stewart. In just about every photograph and scene that Jim and Shelley share in the film, Jim put his right side forward and let Shelley be the beautiful one. What a gentleman! Tony Curtis had equally positive memories of working with Jimmy on Winchester 73. Tony, as the new Universal Studios contract player, actually met Jimmy his second day on the Universal lot and asked Jim, the first movie star young Bernie Schwartz had ever met, to take a picture with him, which Jim graciously did. And on the first day of Winchester 73 filming, Tony was shocked when Jimmy Stewart remembered their earlier brief meeting. As Tony recounted in his 2008 autobiography, quote, Winchester 73 was the first big-budget picture Universal put me in. I was thrilled to play in a picture with Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy was an incredibly nice person. In his case, there was no difference between his lovable film persona and the man himself. When he showed up on the set for Winchester 73, he came right over to me and said, Hi Tony, how are you? You could almost hear the other guys standing around wondering, why would Jimmy Stewart know this guy? They weren't aware that I'd met Jimmy on my second day on the Universal lot. Most guys would have forgotten all about a minor moment like that, but not Jimmy Stewart. He was a class act all the way. Unquote. Don't you just love Jimmy Stewart? It came as a shock to Lou Wasserman, Jimmy, and the heads of Universal when Winchester 73, the modest Western produced in 30 days at a budget-friendly $918,000, overperformed at the box office. With his percentage deal, Jimmy Stewart earned $600,000, 
the equivalent of about $6.5 million today for Winchester 73. Combined with his other earnings that year, Jimmy made $1 million in 1950 alone. As Bob Hope comically said of his friend's enviable financial situation, quote, I didn't think that Jimmy Stewart could move that fast. He had that slow way of talking, but he sure could talk fast if the money was right. Unquote. Winchester 73 ushered in a new era of westerns, with imperfect heroes motivated by darker emotions. Clint Eastwood later paid Jimmy the highest compliment by citing him as inspiration for Eastwood's own portrayals of flawed Western heroes. The film also changed the course of Jim's career. Winchester 73 demonstrated that Jimmy Stewart could do it all. As Jim himself said of his segue into the Western genre, quote, I had to toughen up, and I found that in Westerns, I could do it and still retain what I was. Unquote. Perfectly said. With the depth and versatility of his performance in Winchester 73, it was clear that Jimmy Stewart was an actor with staying power. And his partnership with Alfred Hitchcock a few years later in 1954's Rear Window would drive that point home. And that's it for Winchester 73. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macronsandmimi.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And don't forget to join me next week for all about Jimmy and Grace Kelly in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window.